Welcome to the second in our two-part mini September mini-series uh, entitled The Globalization of Israeli Culture. You will notice this year that we have a few mini-series uh, programming uh, type options. The reason I'm doing that is if I bring a speaker in like Dr. Shana Weiss from Boston, it doesn't make sense to fly her in for one program. So um, if you're going to fly in, you've got to do at least two. So we have a few mini-series coming up. We have one in November, one in December that I will mention either today or you will hear about. Today's topic is Pop Toys and Power Politics, Israel and the Eurovision Song Contest. How many of you have heard of Eurovision and know what it is? Okay, so some of you do, some will find out. And uh, this is our 19th year. I want to thank you again for being supporters and donors of CSP. If you haven't had your chance to support us yet, don't worry, we will accept your money, I promise you. And you can do it online, you could do it by check to CSP. I also want to thank all of you who are members of our Legacy Circle. As I mentioned last night, we're looking to grow our Legacy Circle by at least five new families in the next few months because there's a challenge grant out there from the Jewish Community Foundation, and if we do grow, they will give us money and we can use that towards programming. And, and then one day, we will benefit from those of you who sign up to be part of the Legacy Circle. Upcoming programs I wanted to mention, Joel Gariboff will be here next Sunday, or this coming Sunday. For whom do we blow the shofar? It's our 18th annual uh, pre-high holiday program. It's meant to get you in the mood, in the mode for the holidays. They are coming up. I also suggest you go to your synagogue this weekend, look around so you know what it looks like if you haven't been there <laughs> since last holidays or since the summer. You may have a new rabbi, some of you. You may have a new cantor, a chazan. You may have new wallpaper. Your whole synagogue may have been remodeled. Yeah, go check it out. Claim your seat. Say hi to the rabbi. Um, other programs that I wanted to mention, we have, and I'm going to start really mentioning, we have our one-month scholar, our 19th annual one-month scholar program coming up. Professor Paul Lips from Tel Aviv University will be here. The whole month is about Israel, 30 different topics. We are honoring Roz and Elliot Vogelfanger for all they've done for CSP. So I will start to embarrass Roz and Elliot at every event and uh, tell you things about them. But, I, but Roz, you have to send me your bios and Elliot's bios if you haven't already so I can tell people about your backgrounds. Um, so, Israel is a big theme this year. Last year we did a lot about Eastern Europe in anticipation of our trip that we took to uh, Lithuania and Poland. In October 2020, as many of you know, we are going to Israel. So whether you're coming with us or not, you'll join us in Israel education. And we'll do it a CSP way, which is to try to cover aspects of Israeli society and culture that you don't really hear about, certainly not in the news and probably not necessarily in your synagogue. Um, they cover political stuff, which is awesome, and groups do that. I really want to cover the other aspects that make Israel special and give, gives us each a link to Israel in a different way. Uh, and that's what we'll be doing this week, for example. Other uh, things I wanted to mention was we are organizing a boutique arts trip to Israel the following year, October 21. So if you're interested in Israel and you're interested in the art scene, which is the dance, the music, the acting, this may be a trip for you. It is staying in boutique hotels, eating at really interesting creative um, restaurants, and it's a very limited group. I think we'll take maybe 15 people on that trip. Whereas the uh, trip in October 2020 is going to be closer to 80. We're going to Italy in 2021 with Mark Michael Epstein. You all know about that. That interest list is 62 already. We can only take 30 people. So when we open that finally, um, I guess we will sell out. Please take, your moment, take a moment and turn off your cell phones. We are recording for our iTunes site. If you don't know about our iTunes site and you're new to CSP, we have about 200 of our lectures. So this is you know something... To think about on iTunes, and you can go to just type in OCCSP and it'll take you to our podcast. You can enjoy that.
Okay. Uh, if you didn't get your honey last night, I may have some for you. Last night we gave out honey from CSP, and honey's from Israel. To those of you, uh, to anybody who came to the program, to wish you all a sweet new year. So if you didn't get your honey, stay afterwards, and maybe I have some for you in the car. And if not, we'll get it to you later. Okay, Dr. Shana Weiss is Associate Director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies at Brandeis University, which I know nothing about, and I assume n none of you know much about. So I asked Dr. Weiss, tell us, what is the Schusterman Center for Israeli Studies at Brandeis? What does it do? Um, she was the inaugural Distinguished Visiting Scholar in Israeli Studies, in Israel Studies, at the United States Naval Academy, which I guess didn't know either. So the Naval Academy, to this day, has a program on Israel Studies? Okay. She earned her PhD from uh, New York University in Hebrew and Judaic Studies. She completed postdoctoral fellowships in Israel at Bar Ilan University and Tel Aviv University, where she taught courses about Israeli history and society. Did you teach that in English or Hebrew? In Hebrew. Okay, impressive. Um, she has also taught at Brooklyn College and New York University. Her research interests converge at the intersection of religion and gender in Israeli public sphere, which I think is the subject of your upcoming book. Uh, as well as the politics of Israeli popular culture, which is what we focused on last night and we're focusing on today. She's completing a book on gender segregation in the Israeli public sphere. Please join me welcoming back Shana Weiss to Orange County. So I just wanted to start again by thanking Ari and thanking this really impressive organization and all of you for showing up with a dedication to learning about Israel and Jewish culture more generally in a way that I think we don't always talk about, um, but I think would argue is even more interesting than what you might hear on the news. So before I started, I just wanted to say a couple of words about the Schusterman Center and some of the things that we do. So the Schusterman Center is a center at Brandeis. We are dedicated to the study um, of Israeli society and history, as well as training the next generation of scholars. So we have graduate students who are doing all sorts of amazing work, ranging on topics from a comparison of Japanese and Israeli literature to uh, someone is currently, one of our graduate students now is currently working on the nation state law in context, things um, in her, she is comparing Israel and Bangladesh. We also have people working on all other aspects of Israeli society in our faculty, um, from religion to art. We actually have one of the only chairs of Israeli art in the United States. Uh, and additionally, we run all sorts of programs. Um, our biggest program is something called the Summer Institute for Israel Studies, where we have about 20 professors from all over the world who come to Brandeis for a week and a half and take an intensive course on Israel, and then we bring them to Israel for a week and a half uh, to learn more about Israeli society. And then when they come back to their home universities, which are all over the world in North America, from California, Poland, Greece, Brazil, that was just this year. Um, they then teach and have a network of uh, other alumni of this program. That's a really amazing program. We also have conferences and programming during the year. Um, we are working, actually one of the things that I'm trying to do is working on putting more of our programming online to benefit those who are not unfortunately located in Waltham, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, our conference from last year, which was on Israel and the innovation economy, all the videos for that are on our website. I highly recommend it. We had the governor of the Bank of Israel, or the former governor, which is their equivalent of chairperson 
of the Fed come and speak to us about the challenges in this economy, where things are going, uh, and some of the truth behind what we um, talk about when we talk about Startup Nation, in addition to a host of other speakers as well. So I encourage you to get on our website. I have cards. I'm happy to talk to anyone about that as well. Okay. So I'm going to move on for today's topic. I had no idea what Eurovision was until 1998. Okay, so that summer, I was a camper at Ramah Palmer in New England, and everywhere you turned was this song I kept hearing over and over again. The Israeli staff played it constantly, and I didn't know why the song was so popular. It wasn't even really in Hebrew, sort of half in Hebrew, and I even learned that Dana International actually had been born a man, even though now she was a woman. It was definitely my first exposure to a trans person. I had learned that Israel had won a European song contest, and that's why this was so popular. And even though I was only a teenager at the time, I was pretty sure that Israel wasn't in Europe, right? Uh, and I think for many American Jews, right, if they know anything about Eurovision, they know about it through Israel. That's definitely true for me. And what's funny is that Camper became a professor of Israel studies, and I still had the same questions, right? Why is Israel in a European song contest? Why did it matter? And where does the song contest come from? So I'm gonna try and explain some of the answers to this question and think about why this is so important for us when thinking about how Israel relates and presents itself to the world. But first, we, of course, we have to talk about Eurovision and what it is. But I thought even before that, because I know not all of us know about Eurovision and you may not know one of the four, every one of the 40-something songs, right, that Israel has um, sent to Eurovision, I'd play you this really interesting mega mix. It's a cappella, so you're not gonna get the full musical journey, but in it, it's really interesting because I think you can hear some of the changes in Israeli song, in Israeli history and culture through the music that's portrayed. So what this is, it's done by an a cappella group. It was presented for when Israel hosted Eurovision last year. I'll explain what that means in a second, but I think it gives us a taste of the variety of music that Israel has sent to Eurovision in the past couple of in the past 40 years. So it's about 4 minutes long. Bum, bum, ba, ba, bum, bum.
בערך שעות העשר רוצים לראות את השמש, התריסים קצת מסתירים פותח התריסים ולא רואה השמש איזה שמש מסתירות שורות של בניינים sort of run through of some of a part of Israeli musical history through these songs. And I want you to remember some of the things you notice about how the music change, maybe how the lyrics change, and we'll talk about that later on. And I wanted to show you a picture of Dana International in 1998. Um, one second, I will take your question. Uh, this is when she won. This is a jacket designed by Jean-Paul Gaultier, for the, those of you who know your fashion designers, which has, he has said is one of the favorite pieces he ever designed. Um, I'm going to ask that you actually hold your questions until the end. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay, thank you. So what is this contest, right? So the Eurovision Song Contest was founded in 1957. Okay, by the European Broadcasting Union. And it comes out of, after World War II, right? There's an idea that things need to happen, that we need to increase cult bonds among nations so that they don't go to war again, right? So in the same way the European common market was created, right, what became the EU, there was an idea that maybe if we have a song contest, where each country sends a song and they engage in a friendly competition that it will help prevent war, right? So it really comes out of this context. And the only thing you need to do is to be part of Eurovision is be a member of the European Broadcasting Union, 
right? So the reason why Israel participates, along with other countries we might not think of as European, is that they have joined the European Broadcasting Union. And Israel has participated, actually, since 1973. Each country chooses its own representative. Um, most now choose it in a competition like American Idol. There are, sometimes there are in, uh, internal conference, um, councils that choose. Israel used to do that. Um, songs used to be limited to the national languages, right? So it had to be in Hebrew or Spanish or whatever. Now people can perform in any language. So one of the really interesting things, and you probably noticed it in the video also, is are people singing in their native language? Are they singing in English? And understandably, there's been a huge growth in English, right? Because people want to make it internationally. There are two ways of voting for the competition. Um, there's popular voting, which is pretty straightforward. Um, people text in their votes. It used to be a phone system. Now it's a text or online system. And there are also jury voting. So each country has a jury. This is where it gets very complicated, so I'm not going to explain all the rules. But the idea is that countries cannot vote for themselves. Okay, They have to vote for another country. And what has emerged, actually, are voting blocks in which, for example, all the countries of the former Soviet Union tended to vote for each other. Right? Or, um, uh, you know, or Ukraine wouldn't vote for Russia and vice versa. Um, there's actually really interesting, like, statistical analysis of this data if you're, if you're a statistics person and you like Eurovision. Um, but they, the EU has actually constantly changed the rules to try and disrupt some of those systems. What happened? Um, the winning country in Eurovision hosts the next year, right? So that's why Israel hosted in 2019. It's because they won in 2018. Uh, in 2018, the country, excuse me, 2019, the Netherlands won. They will be hosting next year. So they actually just announced a week or so ago that Rotterdam is going to be hosting Eurovision. Uh, it's a whole official bid process. They have to have enough people. They have to have an appropriate venue, hotel rooms, etc. So Eurovision is pretty ridiculous for those of you who have had any engagement with it. It's very campy. It's very out there. It doesn't take itself very seriously, right? It's trying to say that, and but even in all that silliness, right? It's trying to say that if we just compete with each other, right, we can, you know, we can all get along, right? Sometimes there is a cliche of reality television, right, where the people say, I didn't come here to make friends, right? In Eurovision, it's the opposite, right? We came here to make friends, right? There's this idea, and it, maybe it sounds naive, right, in a time where Europe is obviously in a state of crisis, that this can help hold the continent together. And just for two examples of some of the craziness that comes out of Eurovision, I brought you two pictures of this year's contestants. Um, the group on the left, anyone recognize them? This is Hatari. This was the Icelandic entry. Um, they are a punk metal band. Um, they were very strongly 
um, anti-Israel, right, and spoke about their conflicting feelings about performing in a country that they did not feel comfortable with, but they did perform, right, which is interesting. Um, they also challenged Bibi Netanyahu to a traditional Icelandic wrestling match, which he unfortunately declined. Um, but again, a lot of spectacle, a lot of yelling and screaming and whatnot. This other woman, this is um, Katie, Heind uh, Katie Miller Heindicke. She is the Australian entry. Now you may think, Israel's not in Europe, but at least it's sort of close. Australia's really not in Europe, right? For a variety of reasons, um, I think a lot having to do with ratings and other things. Australia now competes in Eurovision. It's been a couple of years. Uh, I don't know if you can see it here. Um, you have to look at the bottom, but she's actually performing while suspended on basically a stick and singing from the air. Uh, it's a great set. I highly recommend it. What's interesting is that it's never really been popular in America, right? Americans don't really know about Eurovision. I suspect that may change for a couple of reasons. Um, it, for a couple of years, um, the, one of the uh, small cable channels, the Logos channel, actually carried the rights to host Eurovision. Uh, it was a channel mainly, uh, it was a gay sort of lifestyle channel. And we'll talk about the connection between gay culture and Eurovision in a bit. Uh, they stopped that. But Netflix actually recently acquired the rights to host Eurovision. You can actually apparently watch this year's um, semifinals and finals on Eurovision. And they're actually making a movie about Eurovision with Will Ferrell, um, who apparently married a Swedish woman and has been obsessed with Eurovision ever since. Rachel McAdams is going to be into it. Into it. Um, I have friends who covered Eurovision when it was in Tel Aviv who are culture reporters, and they told me that Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams were there to observe, and that they also shot a lot of the crowd shots um, when, um, during this year's contest. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. So with all of this, where does Israel come in, right? And what's interesting to me about Israel and Eurovision is that we see a way in which Israel advertises itself to the rest of the world or to the largely European world, right? Um, it has participated almost every year since 1973. Um, twice it did not participate because uh, the competition fell on Israel's Memorial Day for Soldiers. That was many years ago. Um, it has won four times more so than any other non-European country. Uh, what's interesting is that it's not always in line with larger musical trends in Israel, right? Like other countries, Israel, ten the music tends towards the poppy. Um, it's not always rap or rock, or so there are other trends big in Israel, but it's a big deal, right? It, Eurovision is a huge deal. Um, it's not just a big deal in Israel, it's a big deal, the, big deal the world over. And when Israel won Eurovision, it was not just a chance for people to come, right, from all over the world, but also to advertise to people to all over the world, right? You should come here, you should spend your tourist dollars here, right? You should have fun, right, sort of being in Tel Aviv. So it's a, really a chance that, I wouldn't call it free advertising, because it's definitely not free, they pay a lot of money to put it on, but a chance at the world stage that Israel might not have otherwise, right? If we think of Israel's image in the news, right, it's usually about the conflict, right? And here's a chance, here, here was a chance for Israel to promote 
a vision of itself that was not connected to the conflict. So what I want to do is talk about three songs that I think signify really interesting trends in Israeli society. Um, I'll play you some clips from them, and then we'll come back together and we'll think about maybe where Israeli music is headed, just thinking about Eurovision. But I couldn't be remiss without probably talking about my favorite entry, let's skip that, um, which is from the year 2000, um, a song called Sameach, Are Happy. Um, I'm not going to play you the song because it's terrible, even by Eurovision standards. Um, the band was a joke. It was basically assembled at the last minute. Um, and they wrote this song sort of as this joke, basically. But what's interesting, right, is that they wave on stage Syrian and Israeli flags. That is, this is interesting because this is 2000, right? This seems like another, I mean, it is another century, but it seems like another planet at this time, right? Israel is withdrawing from Lebanon. They are negotiating with the Syrians over a potential withdrawal from the Golan, right? And this song talks about a friend in Damascus who dates an Israeli girl, right? And during the dress rehearsal, right, they hold up these flags, like the Syrian flag and the Israeli flag. And the Israeli, like, the Israeli government is like, you cannot do that. You're not supposed to show flags at Eurovision. It's not supposed to be political. And it's inappropriate, right? Well, of course, they do it anyway. <laughs> and they bring out their acts um, as, plagued, as planned, and you can see it here. And they actually have an Arab singer and an Israeli singer, or I should say an Arab-Israeli singer and a Jewish singer, um, holding the flags, and they kiss on stage during their performance. So this causes a huge uproar. They get in trouble afterwards. They actually finish 22nd of 24. My personal favorite about this story is that the contest was held in Stockholm this year, and they actually go to an Assyrian community center in Stockholm, because they think it's a Syrian community center. <laughs> um, Assyrians, for those of you who don't know, in addition to the nation that's talked quite a little bit about the Bible, is an ethnic group um, usually affiliated with the Kurds, so they make, it, they make that unfortunate mistake. Um, they're a joke, everyone is upset. There's actually an amazing documentary called The Loser Takes It All, um, which I think I found on YouTube once. If you email me, I can try and find it. Um, that talks all about this. But it really, I think, showcasts some of the absurdity, but also the really big politics that go along with it. So I wanna, I'll mention briefly the three songs, and then we'll talk more about each one of them. And the first thing I wanna talk about is these questions of East and West, right, in Israeli culture. Right, you can say, oh look, Israel participates in Eurovision. Israel is European, right? But three of the four people who have won for Eurovision in Israel have actually been Yemenite Jews, right? Which is really interesting, right? So are they Western, are they Eastern? Are they parading a different part of Israel to be accepted by the European West, right? And of course, even within Eurovision itself, there have been lots of changes in the participants. Right, this year there was in a, a Muslim singer um, in Italy who rhymed his song, his name is Mahmoud, he rhymed his, uh, in his song uh, talking about Jackie Chan and fasting for Ramadan, 
the French entry was a, a gay North African who sung about love and acceptance, right? So again, these ideas of East and West are constantly changing, are in flux, especially, right, in a time, as I said, of crisis for Europe. So I just want to talk a second about Mizrahi Jews and sort of who they are, because I'm not sure we all understand or all have a sense of where they come from, right? Um, Mizrahi Jews, which literally means Easterners, even though plenty of the people who came to Israel came from west of Israel, right? North Africa, right, to a large extent, is west of Israel. Um, they came in waves of immigration in the 1950s, and these are Jews from Arab and Islamic lands. Iran, Iraq, Yemen, Tunisia, Morocco, and they all have different histories, right? They don't necessarily all have things in common with each other, right? But when they came to Israel, they're grouped together under this category of Mizrahi, which has some overlap with the, with the term Sephardi, right? I can talk about the, the specific difference between those in the Q&A if you want, but for now we can think of them as roughly interchangeable, but Mizrahi being more of an ethnic term and Sephardi being more of a religious term. And of course, the Ashkenazi establishment, right, the Jews from Eastern and Central and Western Europe, who were largely in charge of Israeli establishment at the time, did not look highly on these groups of people. They didn't speak Yiddish. They often spoke Arabic or Persian or French. They were often more religiously observant, although not always. And they had a culture that was alien, right? And when these people came to Israel, they were put often in development towns, sort of towns around the border of Israel where there was much less economic opportunity and their culture was belittled as well, right? One of the interesting things that's happened in Israel over the past, let's say 70 years, is that people of the second and third generation of these Mizrahi Jews have started to thinking about their culture and started examining it more, right? Just, I'll give one example. Dudu Tassa, which is a name that sounds funny in English, um, is a very popular Israeli rock star. He did research on his family and discovered that his grandfather was one of the most popular musicians in Iraq in the 1920s. He recorded an album of his family, of his grandfather's music, and sort of with his own interpretations and released it. It's called Dudu Tassa and the Qataris. His, father, his grandfather's band was the Qataris. And there's actually a documentary from about 10 years ago about this journey and learning about it. So you see in Israel today really interesting cultural things about the music in East and West and how they sound different. But for a long time, Mizrahi music was considered outside of the mainstream in Israel. The music was not played on the radio. Uh, one of the things now, the Eurovision is chosen by a popular competition, right? An American Idol type competition. For a long time, really until the 90s, it was chosen by an internal committee that was government employees. And will probably not surprise you, right, that they didn't always think very highly of Mizrahi music. But there's one exception that I think is really interesting, and I could give an entire talk just about her. Right, and that's Ofra Haza, okay? So Ofra Haza is the young, was the youngest of nine children, right? She was born in 
uh, near a Shuk HaTikva in Tel Aviv, which now is a gentrifying area, but then was really a very poor part of Tel Aviv. She was noticed because in a community theater program when she was a child, someone noticed her incredible voice. Um, she, like many Israeli musicians, got her start by performing in the Israeli army band, right? Um, so she was in the musical band for her mandatory service. And her Eurovision performance really launched her to international fame, and she became one of Israel's most important musicians. Um, she unfortunately died in 2000. She was only 42. She was actually one of the first people to, not one of the first people, but one of the first celebrities in Israel. She died of AIDS. Um, so launched a conversation about AIDS and how the, um, and sexually transmitted diseases, especially in Israel. And what's interesting to me is that she sings in Germany, okay, in 1982 or 83. I'll check the date. Um, so this is not so long after Munich, right, the Munich Olympic massacre. It is obviously only a couple of decades after the Holocaust, and it's a sensitive performance, right? So what she does, and I'll show you the performance, I think it's fascinating, is that she has a song called Chai, Life, right? She sings with six, five other backup dancers. They're dressed in yellow. She's dressed in white. And it's a song about the revival of the Jewish people. The song, criminally, in my opinion, doesn't win. It gets second. But I actually think it's one of the most important, if not the most important, uh, Israeli entry into Eurovision. So I'm going to play it for you now. And it's just about three minutes long. And in it, I think you can hear Ofra Haza's voice and sort of both its more traditional Arabic roots and also here, which is a more, I would say, Western sounding song as well. And of course, with the next couple of videos, you know, this is from the uh, 1980s, so the quality isn't as high, but I think you'll get a chance to see some of um, the staging and whatnot, which is very important. And the interpreter, the performing artist, interpreted by Ofra Chaza. Shirbita 
performance, right, even though Israel doesn't win, catapults her to international fame. And she becomes a huge figure, not just in Israel, but all over the world. And what's interesting is that at a time when Mizrahi artists were pretty, or say Mizrahi society was pretty disrespected by Israelis, I would say the mainstream Ashkenazi Israeli culture, there's an idea that Mizrahi Jews were these great performers, right? That they were entertaining, um, that they had were incredible musicians, right? You can hear how incredible her voice is here. And in a, a memoir that was recently published by Ayelet Sabari, who is an amazing author, she just published a memoir called The Art of Leaving. I highly recommend it, about her time spent abroad. She has time or she has an essay in it where she talks about how her, as a Yemenite woman growing up in Israel, Ofra Chaza was her only um, hero, right? That looked like her, that sounded like her, that had her culture. Um, and I just want to read one paragraph um, from that essay um, when she heard about Ofra Chaza's death in 2000. Now I thought I would never get to tell her what she had meant to me growing up how much she had inspired me, given me hope, empowered me. Because in a world where actors on TV were Ashkenazi, and the singers on the radio were Ashkenazi, and the models in the magazines were Ashkenazi, there was Ofra, the simple Yemenite girl from Hatikva neighborhood, whose star shone brighter than anyone's, who made it against all odds, and who looked like me, or one of my more beautiful cousins, like family. Right? And you know, I already said it, but I want to emphasize again, this song is a really stunning use of what I would call political camp, right? Eurovision isn't supposed to be political, but obviously this song is political, right? There are six dancers. Five are dressed in yellow. Ofra is dressed in white. They're singing in Munich, right? In 1983, right? It's just barely a decade after the Israeli, uh, you know, 11 members of the Israeli Olympic team were murdered by terrorists. And she's saying, right, she's playing on this traditional Jewish slogan, right? 
Am Yisrael Chai, right, the Jewish people live, and saying, we're still here, I'm still singing the song of my grandparents, right? It's a really impressive and I think really moving example of how Eurovision can be a place where Israel shows itself on the international stage. But what's also interesting is that it sounds really different than a lot of her other music, right? If you didn't know she was Yemenite, right, if you didn't hear maybe or see a picture of her, right, you wouldn't necessarily categorize this as Yemenite music or music that's Mizrahi influenced. So your homework for today, right, is to go on YouTube or Spotify or whatnot and listen to some of her other music and hear how she combines East and West in all different sort of ways, right? Some people might say Ofra Haza in the early 80s could only be the representative of Israel once she sort of became more Western, right? Is that true? Is that not true? I think it's something to think about. But it, for me, she's a fascinating character that I think is one of the most important people that's come out of Israeli music. Without people like Ofra Haza, we wouldn't have groups like Ewa. Has anyone heard of them? They're this phenomenal group of uh, Yemenite sisters who sing in Judeo-Arabic. They have a new album that just came out. Uh, they just did an NPR Tiny Desk concert. Um, definitely recommend. And what I would say is that you know, music, just like in America and just like other places, can often be a space for underrepresented groups to have their voice heard. And similarly to Mizrahi Jews in Israel, we have more and more music coming out of the Ethiopian community, um, which often sounds like rap because they've been influenced, right, by the African-American experience in Israel. And, you know, as I said, we see this in other countries as well, even in Eurovision, right, um, in which these ideas of East and West are collapsing and changing and all sort of interesting things. So I want to skip ahead right, from 1982 to 1998. And I want us to go back to Dana International, right? So let's talk a bit more about her. She also is Yemenite, right? She was assigned male at birth, but she identified as female from a very young age. Um, and she wanted to become a singer ever since, as a child, she saw Ofra Haza perform high, right, in Eurovision. Um, her family was poor, but her mother worked hard to send her to music, um, to get under music, um, to send her to music lessons, and she was chosen to represent Israel for the 1998 contest. Everyone had an opinion about this, right? All of you now, right? All of you are probably familiar with that trans issues of transgender are still controversial today. So you can only imagine, right? Almost 30 years ago, what this was like or 20 years ago. Um, some people in the Orthodox Jewish community said that this was an abomination, right? Some people said it's this great, this shows how liberal Israel is, right? Became a huge topic of conversation. And she won, right? So what, and, but before I talk a bit more about that, and maybe her and the connection of Eurovision and queer culture, I wanna play her song, and I want us to think about just in you know, less than 20 years, how much we can hear the difference and how music has changed internationally and also how it's changed for Israel. I also love showing Eurovision songs because they're all three minutes, so it's like this perfect sound bite, makes it easy for presentations. And again, the quality isn't as great, but the sound is good. Thank you. 
You can imagine that even after she won, right, there's huge amounts of controversy. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of interest, right, in her life as a transgender person, what that means. This was a really new concept, right, for a lot of people. Uh, and she has this great quote where she says, My victory proves that God is on my side. I want to send my critics a message of forgiveness and say to them, Try to accept me and the kind of life I lead. I am what I am. And this means, does not mean I don't believe in God. And yes, I am part of the Jewish nation, right? And, you know, we can ask a question, right? Why is Eurovision so popular with the LGBTQ community, right? How has this contest become a space for that culture to interact? Um, Dana was hugely influential, right? In 2014, Conchita Wurst um, won. She was from Austria, also the sort of stage name of a male, of a assigned male artist. And she said she couldn't have done it, right, without Dana. Um, and of course, Israel is, in, you know, Eurovision is incredibly popular in places like Tel Aviv. And, you know, 
if you were paying attention to some of the discussions this year about Israel hosting Eurovision, right, one of the common critiques, right, of Israel is that it engages something ca called pinkwashing, right, that they use their um, record of uh, homosexual, of tolerance of the LGBTQ community in Tel Aviv to cover up for other um, issues with the Palestinian territories, right? We can talk about that or not, uh, you know, debate whether that's valid or not, but I think what's interesting is that it's even brought up, right? And of course I want to say that while parts of Israel are incredibly welcoming, right, to the LGBTQ community, it depends, of course, a lot on where you are and where things, um, you know, and your social status, right? And there are still, of course, battles to be fought. There's still no gay marriage in Israel. It's interesting to see how places like Tel Aviv um, have influenced um, Eurovision culture and of course have influenced this global community of LGBTQ2 culture which you see play out through Eurovision. Uh, I have a friend who works for the Tel Aviv municipality and she told me there was even discussions this year of combining the Pride Parade and Eurovision because it was basically the same people that it attracted. They didn't for a variety of reasons um, but it was something that they seriously considered. And, you know, there are theories that this idea of camp, right, this idea of the um, affectionate, the sentimental, right, is something that's inherently Jewish, right? There's a famous essay by Susan Sontag where she talks about this, right? We can talk about that. Maybe there's something to being an excluded minority, right, uh, that makes you think about the affect, that makes you think about um, what's silly and how the silly can be taken seriously. But for me, it's really interesting to see um, how this plays out, right? She has this one line that I think is really telling, right? She says, camp taste definitely has something propagandistic about it, right? The Jews pin their hopes for integrating into modern society and promoting the moral sense. Homosexuals have pinned their integration into society by promoting the aesthetic sense. So that's like very theoretical. I'll try and translate it. What I think she's saying is camp is normalization. It's saying we want to be like you. We want to be part of you. And when Israel participates in Eurovision, right, that's what I think they're trying to do. They're saying we're part of this community of nations, we're part of this European liberal world order, right, that celebrates diversity and individualism and people being like they are. And that's really important for large parts of Israelis, right, who want to feel normal, right? Of course, not all Israelis are interested in Eurovision or they think it's terrible, right, and think Israel should be special and not like everyone else. But this idea of wanting to be normal and like the other nations, of course, has really deep connections to Zionist roots. And I think that's part of the reason why this contest is so appealing to Israelis and why it's such a big deal, right? And if we look at how Israel advertised itself, right, in last year's Eurovision, we see this, right? And I really say Israel, I really should mean Tel Aviv, right? Tel Aviv wants to say this is a fun place, this is a place to party. This is a place to enjoy yourself, right? And, you know, we really see that desire. It, Eurovision is such a big deal, right, that if you remember, right, there was a barrage of rockets, right, from Hamas the week before Eurovision, right? And 
I don't think it's a crazy stretch to say that one of the reasons why Hamas did that is because they wanted to say, you can't pretend to live a normal life, right? You can't pretend to say we're this normal country, right, while we are fighting the struggle. Um, and what I want to end with is I want to talk a little bit about Netta, right? So Netta, who won Eurovision in 2018, or excuse me, yeah, in 2018, and allowed Israel to host in 2019, I think she represents something else entirely. And she represents, I would say, this larger theme of globalization of Israeli society. Israel's not now not just influenced by America, is not just influenced by Europe, but really all over the world. And Netta is unlike, I would say, any Eurovision winner that Israel definitely has seen, and maybe Eurovision has seen. Right? She's not thin, she's not, um, she was one of the first plus size celebrities in Israel. Her influences, I would say, are more Asian music, beatboxy, right? She sounds different, right? You could ask the question, is there anything Israeli about this, right? Is there anything not, right? But I think she raises an interesting sort of possibilities of for music white go. So I'm gonna play her, the, the song that she won for, and then I'll end with a few concluding comments. Look at me, I'm a beautiful creature. I don't care about your modern time preacher. Welcome, boys, to much noise. You go.
So, right, this is different, right, than I think some of the things we've seen before, right? And I think this speaks to, right, you know, the influences not just of America, as I said, in Israel, right? There are musicians like Static and Ben Al, for those of you who know Israeli pop music, who are taking really global influences. They sing about Brazil, they sing, they sing about Greece, right? A larger increase, uh, a larger interest in East Asia, right, and the Far East. And Israel is, it really reflects Israel's diversity and their own changing population, right? There's an idea, right? Today is Ruvi Rivlin, the president of Israel's 80th birthday, right? A couple of years ago, he gave a very important speech where he talked about the four tribes, right? That there's not necessarily this Ashkenazi majority anymore, but Israel is divided into what he calls four tribes of Israeli Arabs, Haredim, ultra-Orthodox Jews, religious Zionists, and, and sort of the secular um, tribe. Israeli population has become more religious, right? It's become younger. Some of you may know about the Shalva Band, right? A band composed of people um, with uh, special needs. They got to the final rounds of competition for the internal Eurovision contest. Um, however, um, when you perform for Eurovision in Israel, you are con sorry, there's like a rumble, um, you are obligated to perform on Shabbat for the rehearsals, right? Um, the contest is not on Shabbat. They actually moved it so it would be a start after Shabbat, but you rehearse on Saturday. And one of the interesting things that happened is that Miri Regev, the, the Minister of Culture, actually wrote to the European Broadcasting Union saying, is there any way we can get around this to include them? Right? They hadn't won yet, but to enter into the final round, they would have had to sign a contract that would obligate them to perform, and several members of the group were not comfortable performing or rehearsing on the Sabbath. And what I say I think is a really actually unfortunate decision, the EBU did not change its rules. Um, so the Shalva band dropped out, um, and they performed um, as, I think, one of the, the equivalent of like the halftime act, right, during one of the uh, during one of their, um, during one of the semifinals. It's a really beautiful performance. Um, but I think that tension, right, shows some of the changes in Israeli society and things that are going on. And I just wanna end that, you know, there's this idea, what I think we see here in Netta is this idea of a hybrid, right? And the next song she put out is called Basa Sababa. Um, I'm not gonna play you the video, but I recommend it because she, um, dresses up like a rhino and sort of chases bad people in this post-apocalyptic uh, scene. And the song is two things, right? It's, uh, it's basa, right, which sort of means like awful, and sababa, which is awesome. Of course, these words aren't Hebrew words originally, right? They're Arabic words that have entered the Hebrew lexicon. But what's interesting is that it's a hybrid, right? It's not one thing or the other. It's not an it's something else entirely and represents, I think, the really interesting things that come out of an incredibly rich and diverse society um, which, which, um, of which Wajneta is from. So we'll see what Israel does next year and hopefully to, come the 2020 Eurovision will be back in Tel Aviv, 2021. So thank you so much. I'm happy to take a couple of questions. I think Ari will. The situation.
situation with the last band you described, the one with, I think it was blind people, there were some blind people. A couple of different, dis different yeah. disabilities. Had that situation never come up before where there was any rehearsal on the Sabbath, or had previous entertainers just not had the same um, hesitation? And if the situation never come up before, why do you think, do you think there was something political going on in doing it this year and not being willing to change it so that the Israeli group could um, participate? So as far as I know, it had never come up before. Um, I don't think it was political. I think Europeans have different senses of religious accommodations. If you think of like rules about religious gear in the public sphere, that are popular, like no Bert, no hijab, no kippa, like rules that are that come out in France. I think they don't have the same sense of of accommodation that we have in America. I don't think it was especially political for this year. I just said, "Is this you can't you can't do this? Then you can't do this." I think it was an unfortunate decision, but I don't think it was political in the sense of anti-Israel, if that makes sense. We watched it, uh, and it was terrific, but the voting took forever, because they yes. waited for the, the voting does take forever. Um, but there are two things that I wanted to ask. I, first of all, I heard that Israel did not put in their best performers because they didn't want to win, because they couldn't afford to have the, the um, contest a second year there. It's so expensive. Right, so that is a theory that's out there. Israel actually won two years in a row, 1978 and 1979. When Israel won again in 1979, they, were, they said, we do not have the money to host again. Um, if you think of the late 70s, it's a time of recession um, all over, including in Israel. Um, so that theory was out there this year also. Um, I don't know if I buy that much of a conspiracy theory. It takes a lot of organization, uh, which I'm not sure the Israeli government really has. Uh, but I think it's really clear that you know the 2018 entry was very different. Was very different, right? Kobe Marimi, who you saw, you know, there's a reason I'm not showing that entry. I don't. Th I think it was largely forgettable. And then the other thing is, is there were two groups that were political, and they had been warned about being political. Uh, one was Madonna, and hers was slightly, but the Icelandic group was out and out pro-Palestinian, and I had heard that they were being punished and not being allowed to perform next year. Is that true? So what I want to say is that what's interesting about Eurovision is everything is political. The question is what you can get away with, right? What they got in trouble for was the fact that they showed a Palestinian flag when they were being interviewed. Flags are verboten, are forbidden. Right? There is talk that they're going to be fined. They, being allowed to perform again is not really important because usually groups don't repeat themselves. Um, they had their opinions, they expressed them, but they still came. And that's what's really, really interesting to me. So during the, during the Icelandic performance, um, there's no sort of overt political messaging. The Madonna performance, which by the way was paid for by a rich um, well, they're all, all, I guess all philanthropists are rich, but a Canadian Jewish philanthropist who thought it would be a good idea to have Madonna perform. It's the same person who paid for Formula One, the fancy car race. Um, and Madonna had a political message that apparently was not approved, pre-approved by the EBU because they wouldn't have approved it. 
Um, I, I mean, the Madonna performance was terrible for those of you who saw it, so that was like the least of her problems there. But again, it was the same issue with Madonna. It was the flags. Well, just wait for that. How many people attend Eurovision? Is it like Comic Con here? Is it, I mean, is, how big is it? So that really depends on the venue, but more important than the venue is the ratings, and it's, it's made for television. Um, it's watched by hundreds of millions of people across the world. So the venue maybe holds 10,000, 15,000. It depends on the, each venue where it's held, but it is televised all around the world, and it's huge. Um, and that's why I was talking about the sort of free advertising that comes along with it, um, where you get it in, if you watched this year, each, and this happens every year, there, um, the artists, before the songs start, there's a little clip where the artists go to different tourist sites, um, which of course is like free advertising, right, for these tourist sites. So you have, if you watch this year, as you see, you know, the person from, I don't know, I don't remember them, you know, but the person from, I don't know, Poland, they go to the Dead Sea or they go to the Israel Museum or whatnot. So if you're the Ministry of Tourism, right, you're thinking really seriously about what sites you want featured in those little mini ads. Any last questions? One last question. Very personal for me. So just um, if you could talk a little bit more about the globalization of pop music, my kids. Um, who are 13 and 16 go to Vermont and come home every summer with lots of new pop songs and it's really um, great and we love it. But I'm hearing um, not just English and rap, but I'm hearing so many influences from around the world as you mentioned, but a lot of Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of, I mean, I have guesses, but I kind of wanted to hear kind of just about um, how that's all become so popular and it's heavy influence on these rocking out, this pop music. Yeah, so there's a ton of crossover musically between Mizrahi music and Spanish music. I think there are similar, you know, I'm not an ethnomusicologist who would be able to specifically talk about the beats and how they work out, um, but I think if the minority experience of being, a, but not a small minority, I think that's something that connects the two. Um, and I'll give you a non-musical example, which is that I don't know how many of you are familiar with Jane the Virgin, of a phenomenal television show that I highly recommend, which is a set in a Miami um, and in a Hispanic family and a Latinx family. There was an Israeli remake that was a Mizrahi family, and they're all in Ashkelon, right? So I think there are similarities in beats, in dancing um, that connect the two. And, and you know, artists listen to everything, and it's easy to listen to everything now. So producers, people making these music, and, you know, similar to last night, right, they want to think global, right? Uh, it's a little harder with music sometimes than things like television, but there have been a lot of attempts to make, for example, Static and Banal popular in America. It hasn't quite worked yet, to my, which breaks my heart, but if you can sell records in America or you can sell records in Europe, there's a lot more people there than they are in Israel, right? So they want to attach themselves to those trends, which are huge worldwide. It is, but it's literally a line-for-line -line translation. It's not very exciting. It's like a web series called But El Habitula. It's, it, I watched like one episode. It was like a YouTube thing. It's not, it's not super exciting. But it was interesting to see those decisions made. Before we wrap up, just um, 
What are you working on now with regard to Israeli culture? Like, what's your next article you're writing? Is there anything you can share with us? So Related or not related to yours? Yeah, no. So I'm thinking about a couple of things. One is um, I want to write about Our Boys, which is promoted, uh, which I mentioned last night, which has talked a really, promoted a really interesting conversation in Israel, sort of who owns narratives of bereavement, right? Um, a letter went out um, from the Bereaved Families Forum in Israel saying it was inappropriate to make this show. Well, why, you know, do they have special power, right? Should they have special power, right? That's a really interesting question for me. And then another thing I'm working on, and this hopefully will be my second book, but, you know, I got to finish the first book first, is a history of Israeli television. And I'm really interested in not just the shows, but the production as well, right? How um, did Israel change its laws to allow for things? What does this mean for Israeli business people? Um, and how this tells the story of Israeli globalization. So I'm always interested in the back angle um, of how these things are made, right? Because these songs don't drop from the sky, right? They are heavily produced um, and made to achieve certain goals. Thank you. Thank you all for coming Thank you. out.